Welcome to Inclusionism. I'm your host, James Felton Keith. Uh, welcome to my church for another Sunday where we like to say individuals are at their best when they identify with the community and communities are only at their best when they identify all of their individuals. Um, this week, we're going to get uh, really nerdy with two guests, actually. Our first is Nathan Chin. He is a leader of the Radical Exchange Movement. He'll explain a bit more about what Radical Exchange is. I've had some other folks from Radical Exchange on in the past to talk about big ideas and policy and furthering democracy that they've been bringing up over the course of the past few years. Um, Nathan is also an operations generalist and entrepreneur and resident. I'm, I'm not sure that he wears that title. It's one that I'm drawing on him at Free Agency. And um, later in the hour, we'll have uh, Lamont Robinson, who is an Illinois state rep from the 5th District, and that includes um, parts of Chicago. And we'll try to see if we can uh, how and where uh, folks like Lamont are available to to consider the sorts of ideas that uh, that Nathan and company are bringing up. So first, uh, Nathan, thanks for for joining us. Uh, Absolutely, here in Harlem. Yeah, where are you where are you coming from? East Williamsburg. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. So this wasn't that bad of a of a trek. No, not okay. at all. Okay. All right. Um, are you up here often in Harlem? In Harlem, yeah. I am admittedly not. This is probably my second time in Harlem overall. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, overall? Yeah. When was the first time? What, did, what were you, I, you uh, through? A friend and I went to Sylvia's up here once. Oh, really? And But otherwise, yeah, I really got to make it out here more, man. How was Sylvia's? <laughs> it was good. It was decent. Oh, it was, it was good? Decent. Yeah, it was worth the trip. So what, like breakfast, lunch, dinner? Uh, it must have been lunch. It was lunch or something like that, okay. yeah. What did you have, like grits with cheese and something like that? I'm just curious. I can't even remember now. It was so long ago. I think it was, yeah, something, something like fried, okay, <laughs> fried so chicken. Yeah. I only like, oh, my God, this is going to be uh, illegal. Somebody might call in for this. So I'm not going to take this call. You can just email us. Um, <laughs> I really only like going to Sylvia's for breakfast. I like, you know, uh, okay. the grits that they have and, you yeah. know, I throw bacon in there, et cetera. Um, but that's interesting. Okay, so you all came up for Sylvia's. I feel like that's good tourism especially mm. on days like today sundays yeah. harlem is packed with tourists um mm. not from new york i think not mostly but you know folks yeah. from everywhere yeah. um, i mean we walked around too we saw the uh, the uh, apollo theater oh yeah, yeah um got a little bit cultural vibe it was great where yeah. really yeah. i felt it you can feel it in the air man once you come up here <laughs> how long have you been in williamsburg are you like a new yorker do you feel do you, i'm not is that an identity i'm, I'm big on labels i like <laughs> I like all of people's labels. I think we are sort of the labels that we have and then yeah. the labels that other people throw on us. So That's interesting. I yeah. I don't know what I make of labels. Yeah. Uh, I do I do tell people I'm a New Yorker now, so I've been in this city for about three years, but okay, I'm originally yeah. from Seattle. Oh, you were yeah. from Seattle. So I grew up there, went to the University of Washington, um, then moved out here. Are you all yeah. over? So we were talking before the show, everyone, and but you were talking about you're a Houston Rockets fan, too. Yeah. I'm getting way off topic. Uh. But <laughs> So from Seattle, Houston yep. Rockets fan because mm. of Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin. And, but you like Harden, too. Yeah. So James Harden for the kind of actual <laughs> basketball sport aspect. Yeah. Um, and then Jeremy Lin uh, for... I mean, I guess onboard me through that cultural relevance. So what? Where Jeremy Lin is? What is he? Where is he he's, from? Uh, he's Taiwanese American. Oh, he is Taiwanese American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So his parents are, are Taiwan. Yeah, are Taiwanese. they were first generation immigrants. Okay, really? Okay. Mm. And you are? My parents are from Taiwan. I was born in the states. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Okay, so I didn't realize that either. And, you know, I think there is this awkwardness, especially with, I at least see it in black and white people in general. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say this. And I think we experience it, whether we're talking to, like, African folks, Latino folks, Asian folks, you name it. Because there are so many places, and you never Mm -hmm. know how to, you never want to, or at least I never want to say to folks, like, where are you from or what are you? Mm-hmm. Or it's easier when folks have accents because you can go, where's your accent from? Yeah. That's usually my workaround. That's I feel my that. way I feel to that. savvy through it. Yep. That's but, clever. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to work on it for a while because yep. I was like, well, what can I say to not be mm-hmm. offensive? Um, but I think, yeah, I don't think most people would be able to piece that together um, that, well, yeah, that, that you are all, you know, Taiwanese. Is it a, is it a last name thing? Uh, you could, you, you probably couldn't tell from the last name. It's too yeah. similar to, let's say, Chinese last names and a couple other ones, too. Right. Um, we look too alike, but I definitely feel you in terms of, uh, like, being We don't know what to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although, when I was younger, um, and I tried out basketball, maybe in first or second grade, I know whenever I, like, playing the rec gym, people would be like, hey, it's Yao Ming and stuff like that. And, yeah. Um, that never made me feel great because I, I didn't identify with Yao Ming. You know, he's from China and right. he's very much of that descent. But, you know, if I were in the gym today and someone said, hey, that guy looks like Jeremy Lin, I, I, would, I wouldn't feel bad about it, honestly, because he, he is definitely more of, of who I am. Right. So that would be just more like acknowledgement in general, like this is what this guy looks like. Whereas did you feel like the Yao Ming conversation was more of a like that was a diss? It was a jab. Or was it not a, a diss? Or a you, you mean just his presence in the NBA and what yeah. everyone said? Yeah, or like everyone called every you know Asian guy with a basketball, mm-hmm. you know, Yao Ming. Yeah, yeah. thing. It, it's not a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was um, eons ago. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, I lived in China the majority of 2006, and we would oh, go and play no ball over there, and the kids were all wearing, you know, Yao Ming jerseys. I mm-hmm. mean, we would go over there. I'd buy, like, a pair of Jordans for, you know, like Jordan 5s. For like yeah. 20 bucks, 25 bucks. <laughs> and we would go to the court and clean up until there was this group of Jamaicans who would come yeah. and like beat us down. Yeah. But you well, know. You were hooping in $20 yeah. pair of Jordan 5s, is what you're yeah. saying. Oh, oh, the dude. Chinese type. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, clearly they were knockoffs because yeah. you, you, know, you could get them in odd colors, colors that right. you couldn't find over yeah. here. And I was the kind of guy, I never just had a bunch of those shoes anyway. Mm. A lot of my shoes were, you know, hard shoes. You know, I, I wear a suit most days. Mm. So. You know, it was what it was. But, yeah, everyone there was wearing a Yao Ming jersey. Yeah. You know, so it was a big difference. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I felt I felt obligated to go over there and outperform. And we did. I was playing yeah. against, like, younger kids who, you know, anyway. <laughs> Had to dunk on him a bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't get up there. A nice finger roll. But, you know, that was as close as yeah. I got. Can I ask what you do in China? Uh, so I used to design the car seats and the airbags on the Chrysler 300 back in the day. No and, way. Yeah, and we started building them in China in late 05, early 06. And it was really sort of luck of the draw. My career changed, um, and everyone on my team at that point was about my age now. They had, you know, they were in their late 30s. They had kids. They didn't want to go to China for an extended period of time. Mm. And so my manager at the time, she just said, send the kid. And so... We were back and forth there, you know, for like three month buckets, you know, coming back for a week or two to liaise with the team. But we were basically trying to take the manufacturing process that we had, which is mostly in Brampton, outside of Toronto, Brampton, Ontario. That's where we built the 300s that we were selling here in North America. Mm -hmm. We were building them in the fifth ring of uh, China. Uh, There was a partnership with Mercedes. And so it was a career changing opportunity like that eventually got me back to New York because 
my resume looked like. So this guy's an engineer. Mm -hmm. He's worked, you know, abroad and has done all these other things. And then people just started making offers. Do you want to go here? Do you want to go there? Nice. And so after that, I just pretty much stayed You know, New York was my hub, but I stayed out of the country doing you know, multiple different things. I was in South Africa for years after that, mm -hmm. working with energy companies and finance companies and insurance companies. But the China thing was really a big opportunity. And it was it was a party, man. Like we would go there, uh, you know, we would hang out with the Marines, ride around in armored trucks. Like, you know, you go wow. to the American in embassy and, you know, have a barbecue and drink every Friday. And the Marines mm -hmm. are like these actual kids in 19 and 20. And they look at you like an old man. You're like, I'm 23. <laughs> and and you're out like Coyote Ugly was a new thing. So you go to bars and it's like Coyote Ugly bars What's that everywhere. Mean? It was a movie back in the day with Tyra Banks where these girls, would, they do Coyote Ugly. So they stand in a bar and they light drinks on fire and they pour them down. Oh, you know, uh, okay. Yeah, it was Cultural a, trend. Yeah. And so it was bars that they were doing over there that were like American bars. Um, but yeah, I think Coyote Ugly uh, was a... It was a movie that came out. I think it was the late 90s. Maybe it was the early 2000s. My memory's a bit blurry. It all seems like yesterday, but I guess it was more than, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm starting to date myself a bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, that was how I got over there. Uh, I, I, yeah. I didn't realize this either, but you and I share um, a bit of a similar background such that I studied industrial engineering in college. Oh, you did, it's yeah. very acquainted with manufacturing operations and, totally. and had a stint in there too. So yeah. It's process. Everything. So I, yeah. the way I look at everything is process. So... Mm -hmm. You know, my purview of solutions to problems or what problems are in general is there are always systematic problems. There are always process problems. And per that, I guess, segueing into sort of some of the work that you're doing uh, with Radical Exchange, when I met the, the founder of Radical Exchange, um, Glenn Weil, it was through work that I was doing in data science and trying to brand and legalize what personal data was mm. and mutual friends of his and mine introduced us and they just said you all should have a coffee and so we did we had we actually we had breakfast um here in the city and he was talking about data as labor which you know was in his book and i was talking about sort of data as a natural resource because i was trying to solve the the process problem or the industrial engineering problem of how we distribute value or distribute capital to people who who are rightfully owed it. And I think we sort of overlapped in that. And so per that, I like a lot of the other solutions that he was, you know, pre presenting in his book Radical Markets like quadratic voting yep. and some of the things that you are advocating for. So let's go to what um what Radical Exchange is, mm -hmm. like, is it a movement? Yeah. How does it exist? Is it growing? Like, what's, what's your experience? What, right. what is Radical Exchange? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because people use the words community and movement so much these days. It's kind of lost some of its meaning. It is a buzzword. Um, but for me, Radical Exchange is almost more of a mind space now. Mm -hmm. and, and that mind space is inhabited by artists, researchers, activists, entrepreneurs, essentially anyone who is thinking about new sorts of economic and political mechanisms that can um, essentially uh, disrupt or make better uh, ex existing institutions for today. And I think a common element there is it's all about social innovation, right? So a lot of it is based on new ways of organizing, um, different ways of governance, um, more ways to enable skin in the game, um, and all of that. 
Okay, I like it. So, right, the way I look at a lot of the things you are doing is it's sort of trying to advance the democratization of stuff, regardless yeah. of, of, you know, what we're talking about. And so let's explore quadratic voting. So I've got, you know, on our, on our campaign site, um, you know, our congressional run talks a bit about, I was in a voting reform forum about three months ago talking about um, ranked choice voting. Mm. And I talked about quadratic voting instead, which and I knew it was wonky. And we were going into a space where folks were like, we're just wrapping our head around ranked choice. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a good thing. I mean, th this forum was to explore, you know, ideas in general. And I think the, the communications for that particular event was, you know, we've got some other ideas. But um, first things, you know, first, which I think is, you know, radical exchanges in Glenn's main uh, claim to fame, uh, but feel free to disagree. Is you know, what is quadratic voting? Like, what? Yeah. How does it, how does it work? Why does it matter? Yeah. Um, yeah. And why are you all <laughs> hyped about into it? Into it. Yeah. So essentially, quadratic voting is um, an optimal way to display preferences, weighted preferences, that is, um, across a variety of choices. And the way it works is essentially. Um, instead of the case where, you know, maybe everyone casts one vote um, to display their preferences, people are allotted uh, essentially what I'll term credits, and they use these credits to vote. Um, and the actual weight of what their voting uh, resembles is the square root of however many credits uh, that they decide to contribute. So to give an example here, if I have 100 credits and I put it all entirely on one issue, mm -hmm the actual weight of my vote is the square root of uh, 100, right? And that is 10. So I've essentially cast 10 votes for this one issue. Mm -hmm. um, now, if I, uh, you know, assuming there are a lot of choices and uh, let's say 100 individual choices and I could, and I still had 100 credits, I could technically put um, one credit into each choice, which means I've essentially cast 100 individual votes, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, the square root of one is one. Um, so essentially the idea here is that many small contributions uh, will matter more than a few big ones, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the more people decide that, the more people that decide that an issue is relevant, uh, the more the weights of the vote uh, come out, uh, I guess, compared to the rest of the choices. Okay, and so what what is what does that yield though? So you all just did a uh, project with quadratic voting in the Colorado mm -hmm. state legislature, and so um, you know what came of that. In, in my view, I really look at this as an opportunity to prioritize uh, issues yeah. for you know complex, diverse bodies that that mainly disagree. Mm -hmm. um, have we seen any downside to this? When I, when I first met Glenn, he told me, uh, he talked about Prop 8, uh, which was against uh, same-sex marriage in California back in the day. It may have been 2008 or something. And w when he told me about quadratic voting, he said um, it was viewed, at least in the media, that black people didn't want to vote for, you know, vote for this but he said a lot of the research that they saw just showed that they didn't care one way or the other it wasn't that they were you know possessed any sort of phobias but it wasn't their number one priority because they had other things that they were thinking in about, terms like of voting yeah right got it so he his suggestion 
and I think this is where it'd be great to see more research, was that um, with, with more time, we would have seen that uh, per these people casting their votes in a, in a quadratic form and everyone else casting their votes, we would see people's priorities rise to the top and more legislation would be able to be passed based on what people actually think. And I thought, okay, you know, that's interesting. Uh, but I wonder at all if it, if, it, uh, if it dilutes how folks participate. Yeah, I think that's interesting, uh, you saying if it dilutes someone's participation. But uh, thinking of kind of the Colorado caucus example, um, I mean, the existing form of voting for them was that every representative had, uh, I think, uh, I might be recording this wrong, but every representative have, had 15 votes sure. and had to um, vote for 15 policies, right? So they could cast those votes however much they wanted. Oh, they um, had to do 15 policies. Okay. Yeah, there's right. 15 policies and, and 15 votes, and I think they could display uh, the weight of their preferences based off of that, right? Sure. Um, and I don't think it, even intuitively, thinking about how if they were instead given um, 100 credits, sure. right? Um, and the actual weighting of the vote was done in a quadratic relationship to how many credits they voted on sure. or, or they spent, um, there would be a much more obvious um, and prioritized list of what they cared about, sure. right? It's, it's not a linear relationship in terms of what they cast and, and, and the vote that results, but a quadratic one, and therefore um, it's a much more, I guess, smooth graph at the end of the day. Right, then, uh, it, and so, right, so we can compare that to, like, ranked choice would be the the alternative to them sort of ranking stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, wait, 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 let me, let me back that up a bit. Uh, when you say a smooth curve, mm -hmm. right, the alternative to that would just be with them voting one-off, you know, issue by issue by issue. Right. Or, um, or in a ranked choice fashion where, where they can't, they can't run out of credits. They're just, you know, they're, they're, for lack of better words, I feel like we're redundant using this over and over again. But they're just going to keep, you know, ranking them, which, which doesn't, which doesn't weight uh, yeah. importance per se. I feel that. I think the presence of kind of a budget sure. definitely um, changes it in in a way. And kind of to your question of. Um, someone's participation being diluted if anything i think the opposite because the presence of a budget sure. and the fact that your participation mm. um is actually uh a lot more i guess weighted than any other voting system so once again right like you know two people can have 100 credits each mm -hmm. and if someone were to cast if one of them were to cast um 100 credits in one issue that would result in 10 votes being cast. Um, and if the other person doesn't participate, nothing happens, right? But the other person can choose to spread his 100, his or her 100 throughout multiple issues as well, which can net add up more, add up to more than 10 individual votes. Right. Um, okay, so I, I like, I guess the thing I like about, and this is what I like about economists pro approaching stuff in general, is they're always trying to sort of apply money to, to a problem. Um, and so this is this is basically turning people's votes into, well, let's not call them, but capital of some sorts, right? You're spending yeah. credits, you're spending tokens, mm -hmm. you know, you're spending capital, and you can run out of it. So, so it makes it that much more precious. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's this tension here because it's definitely uh, 
it definitely can be seen as a form of capital, right. but I would, I'm just hesitant to move in that direction just because you very quickly move into this, uh, I guess, mode, and this is very common in, in the crypto and blockchain space, which yes, I spent some time yeah. in, where you know you buy tokens or coins and you vote with them, right? And, right. and you just end up with the rich you know, and, and whales uh, gaining control over the vote. Right. So, I mean, it, right, it's still a, a controlled amount of vote, amount of potential, amount of you know, tokenization. But, um, but uh, yeah. But the key here is that quadratic voting needs identity and identity system to work, right? You need to be able to know that everyone has the same amount of credits to vote with. Yeah. Um, and that those votes can't uh, be transferred to another individual, right? Because it matters uh, in terms of who's casting the votes. Right. So, right. So with that said, what was the, the outcome from, uh, from Colorado was what? It was positive and they're considering using it again? Are they? Yeah, yeah. The outcome was positive. I mean, it was just that the preferences for the policies, um, it was a lot clearer in terms of what was actually a priority sure i wonder if there if uh hmm if there was any political fallout i haven't seen any follow-up articles about if the constituents agreed with what the state legislators were uh were advocating for Mm. or prioritizing via their their capital um that's actually an interesting point whether the constituents would care what voting system was used to elicit preferences you really get to see per what you think you're voting for versus what your elected official is, again, spending their proverbial political capital on. Right. right? There's more pressure on the representatives now to more to accurately to capture. Perform. Yeah. Right. Or at least be able to go back. I think there is this delicate dance between, um, you know, leadership and elected leadership in general of definitely assessing what your constituents think and taking that to the table and then leading them a bit to say, here's something we probably should think mm-hmm. that we're not thinking about right now. So it's this, um, it's not as cut and dry. I've heard people say, you know, we should think about our vote like a dollar and the, the representative should represent exactly what we think. And while I agree that the representative should be representative, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be redundant, <laughs> I, I don't think that, uh, that the representative should be without the ability to advocate for and lead his constituency or her constituency to um to to new ideas to new heights yeah it's interesting we're almost kind of coming into the the principal agent problem where you know someone is being trusted to to voice uh you know whatever person they're representing and and there could be uh and now that we're making the preferences a lot more explicit right a lot more specific uh it gets tricky in terms of whether or not they're representing uh it accurately so that said, we're going to take a, a quick break. I want to talk about the principal agent problem. I want to talk about if you think that there's that it's necessary to have even more sort of decentralization uh, it, or how that may even be possible. And we're going to bring in uh, uh, an elected official to see if he's thinking about any of this stuff at all. I don't want him to you know, stumble in here. <laughs> we want everyone to look good on this show. But um, but, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll consider it, I think. Um, so we'll be right back in a few minutes to to go over that but we'll play my favorite song mainly about how cash was most things around us 
listening to WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. All right, we're back with uh, Nathan Chin is still here from Radical Exchange. We're still having hyper wonky conversations off the air about things like um, exponents and quadratic <laughs> voting. Uh, I hope that everyone could, could follow us uh, there. But uh, we also have Lamont Robinson, who is here from Illinois' 5th District in the Illinois House. Uh, he just happens to be here passing through the city. So, you know, welcome to Harlem. Thanks for, for coming all the way uptown or coming, I guess, all the way to New York and coming all the way uptown. Um, and uh, so now that we have a, you know, a real politician in the, in the room uh, to, you know, take the conversation a bit further, I think where Nathan and I left off, even though we were talking about an operational strategy to help elected officials prioritize uh, I think it's now necessary to, to consider how elected officials, how our representatives are potentially reconcilers as they take the, the, the culture, the ethos of a space to an elected body, uh, whether it be you know, federal, state, or municipal, um, what, are some of the, what are some of the things that go on you know, either in, in front of cameras or behind closed doors to define compromise, you know, amongst groups who otherwise don't agree. So before we get into that, Lamont, welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us. Um, what 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 do you have going on here? What, what what brings you to the city? You just taking some time off? I'm taking some time off. Yeah. And I wanted to come down yeah. and uh, give uh, NYC a message, and particularly in the 13th district. Yeah. And that is to uh, please support my dear, dear <laughs> fraternity brother, James Felton Keith, that is running to represent you in the 13th district. We appreciate need it. great representation, not only in New York, um, but we need it uh, across the U.S. And so I'm glad to be here. It's also good to be in a uh, collegial environment. Yeah. I spent eight years at City College of Chicago. Oh, really? And so uh, it's great to be uh, in a, again, in this great environment and great to be in New York and also, uh, just saw Tina Turner, uh, the Tina Turner musical, and it was outstanding. And so to your viewers, uh, Brother Keith, uh, everybody needs to go support Tina in the musical. It was fantastic. Tina. Oh, sorry, folks. I just realized he's on mic three, not mic two. And for anyone who's not familiar, who's watching, um, right, WHCR um, 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem, is right under City College. Uh, so you know, anyone who's not in the general vicinity right now who, who listens daily live or uh, if they listen to the podcast, yeah, we're also at, uh, we're at New York's version, uh, version of, um, of City College. So, so you went to see Tina. Um, I, I kind of want to get down there to see Tina, but I just, I don't know. I'm You're busy. Well, and I, I just, I, Midtown, yes, Midtown is way out of, outside of my district. I rarely make it below 96th Street these days um, unless, well, it involves politics or unless I'm, you know, leaving the city. Um, so, yeah, I think last, last play that I saw was Slave Play, which was interesting. We had a show about it with some of the writers, and it caused a bit of, a bit of ruckus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of sort of, uh, you know, black queer folks from New Haven 
Um, so they came over to the city and wanted to just shake stuff up. So, you know, that's a thing. Um, so where, where are you coming from outside of, uh, so you went to city college. Are you, you're Chicago native. You, yeah. From around the way. I am. I I grew up on the South side of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, which is the best side of Chicago. It is. And my uh, mother's family is from the South side. It's a, it's a great area. And I represent, um, a very diverse district. You mentioned that a little bit on the air. Yeah. Uh, so I represent the fifth district in the Illinois General Assembly, mm-hmm. uh, which starts uh, at an uh, area called South Shore, 79th and Jeffrey, mm-hmm. along the lakefront, um, all the way up to an area called the Gold Coast. So I, I actually encompass the loop. So high net worth, yeah. middle class, low income, all in one district. They're all there. Wow. And how do you... Okay, so I guess that goes, yeah, right back into what we're saying. As... <laughs> Is there a way to find consistency and messaging across all those groups as you as you bounce around and, you know, have conversations in the district? And are you able to take that fully to to the state house? What you all state capital is what? Is it Springfield? Springfield. Is that that's yes. where the Simpsons are from, right? I'm just <laughs> kidding. They're from every Springfield. Close. Yeah. But mainly you all yes. Springfield. Yeah. That is correct. I always hear that. But um yeah, so I mean, so so what is that like? Do you see the role as sort of uh, reconciler? I know I'm, I'm finding um, a a bit of interesting conversations here in the district, uh, here in New York's 13th district. When I talk to voters, who some will say, "You need to take our policy priorities, you know, directly from us," uh, and usually they're not necessarily po- policy priorities, but bullet points and represent them wholly. And then some people will say, I'm looking for, um, I'm looking for new ideas. I'm looking for leadership, et cetera. That's sort of a, it's a delicate dance that we, that we all have to do. But what's, you know, just some of your experience in, uh, in coming in the office, you've been elected for how many years? And, and what was that experience like? It is going to my second term. Yeah. Um, and it's been an overwhelming experience. It's also a humbling experience, but I'll tell you, as I mentioned a little earlier, having a diverse district uh, like the 5th and probably like the 13th, mm. uh, people want, uh, they don't want to be overtaxed. Mm. Sure. Uh, they want good neighborhood schools and they want safety. And so sure. it's not a black issue. Not, it's not a white issue. Yeah. Generally, people want the same things. And so yeah. for me, it is to try to figure out how do I... Uh, bring prosperity across the district. I have, as I mentioned, the Gold Coast, which is per capita the highest real estate in Chicago. Yeah. But how do I bring that wealth, that prosperity to the south end of my district? Mm. How do I make sure that MacBooks are on the north end of my district and on the south end of my district? And that's key. Mm. And so that is something that is, is very dear to my heart as an educator, mm-hmm. uh, that we make sure that uh, we put more funding into our neighborhood schools, that uh, that we uh, have communities where people feel safe mm-hmm. and uh, also uh, bringing jobs and economic development uh, to my district. And so those are things that I, I, I continue to hear about, mm-hmm. um, whether, again, I'm on the north end or the south end of my district. I like it. So that makes me think about so the radical exchange guys have to, to bring Nathan back in um, this other concept called uh, what is it? Quanti- uh, quadratic, quadratic finance. Finance. Yeah. Word. Can you. So I think it's an interesting play. I've I've heard it explained, you know, once or twice. Uh, but can you? Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Help us out. Absolutely. Yeah. So quadratic finance is essentially um, a way to distribute uh, funding for public goods. Um, so I guess the problem right now is that if, for instance, um, there is a fund dedicated to supporting public goods. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, first, there's a lot of argument in terms of where that capital should be allocated to. Um, and second, a lot of the mechanisms we currently use are inefficient. So, for instance, maybe it's something like for every dollar that JFK puts towards this, you know, public good, mm. um, this fund will match dollar to dollar. Mm. Um, or, you know, uh, for every five dollars, we're matching a dollar or something like that. And, and really, all the matching, et cetera, is, is usually very inconsistent across these uh, these funds or um, across any, I guess, resources that, that could be allocated to public goods. So essentially, quadratic finance um, is another way of doing this. And I guess the first concept we have to quickly explain real quick is quadratic voting um, yeah. before we go into finance. So quadratic voting is where a voter, instead of casting, for instance, one vote, they're casting a number of credits. And the actual weight of their vote is the square root of however many credits they cast. So for instance, I could have 100 credits, um, and let's say there are two issues. I could put all 100 credits into one issue, in which case the weight of my vote is 10, square root of 100 is 10. Um, or I could, let's say, and I'm gonna do this math on the spot here, put 64 credits in one issue, so therefore the weight of my vote is eight. And uh, what's the remainder of that? 20, yeah. Well, yeah, something like or 64 is 36, so six. So I could put 36 um, of those credits, my, my remaining credits, right? It's 36, 100 minus 64 is 36. Put 36 <laughs> in the other issue, and that means the weight of my vote is eight, right? So, or sorry, six, six times six equals 36. Um, and so you see in the first case where I put 100 credits into one issue, the weight of my overall vote was 10 votes. But in the second case, where I put 64 in one and 36 in the other, I had 8 plus 6 equals 14, mm -hmm. right, the weight of my vote total. Um, and so essentially, this is a more efficient way of displaying preferences across different issues. Um, so where quadratic finance takes this um, is essentially, let's say there is some fund that is dedicated towards public goods. The matching of this fund with... Uh, the matching of this fund is quadratically, and I guess I'll have to break this down a little bit more here. Um, well, it matches everyone's donations, contributions in a quadratic manner. And once again, the philosophy here is that many small contributions will weight more than a few big ones. That's the key, is that just because someone puts all their votes in one place, right, the actual uh, weight of their overall vote is, is growing less and less of each one they cast. <clears throat> so the way that the fund would be distributed according to quadratic finance is, let's say, people are putting some amount of, uh, or donating dollars towards one issue. Um, first, you are square rooting each individual donation you're summing that, and then you're squaring it to find kind of the optimal fund amount. And the actual fund uh, finds the difference of the amount I just said. I know we're getting a little mathematical here. Mm -hmm. um, the actual fund uh, essentially covers the difference between this optimal amount and however much money was actually cast. Um, and this is a way where um, you know that, just like what I mentioned of quadratic voting, um, you know, many small contributions will matter more than a few big ones, um, you know that these uh, funds for public goods are being distributed in a more um, 
I guess, equitable, equitable. manner. Yeah. So, so the, <laughs> so that was a lot, but to, to sum it all up for folks, I guess the way that I think about quadratic voting or quadratic finance is it can take the, the preference of the many and try to fund in a more decentralized, democratic way the preference of the many. So if we're talking about an elected official's discretionary budget, if we're talking about uh, operational funds per different you know, city, state, and federal departments, I think some of the theorists behind, uh, again, quadratic voting and or finance is that you can take a broader weighted vote from many individuals and properly represent uh, the sentiment of of that group, of that society, of that constituency. And that's essentially what happened in, in Colorado uh, not too long ago. I know that you all have some other projects coming up. I've seen some some news article chatter about, you know, uh, stuff outside of the United States. But um, but no, I, I, I like it. I think uh, in this district, one place that we're starting to look at um, this as an opportunity is I've been talking to different community boards here. So for folks who aren't familiar in New York City, borough by borough, we have more democratic structure via the borough president, who's like a borough-wide mayor. And they have community boards, which are like advisory boards, community by community. And there are 50 people on each advisory board. In Manhattan, for instance, we have 12 of those. In my district alone in Manhattan, we have five. My part of the district in the Bronx, we have one. And there's a lot of diversity on these boards. Uh, even when we talk about you know, the makeup that Lamont brought up of, of his district between the wealthy, the working class, and, and other, um, those people sit on these sorts of boards, at least in New York. And so there is some difficulty in trying to identify consensus in a quantitative way to then speak back to that board and say, this is how, per what you're telling us about uh, what you think you understand about your neighborhood, this is how you should be spending resources. Um, so do you all have a you know structure like that at the 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 aldermen and, and lower level in uh in in chicago are there community boards is that there are there, there there are community boards and it's, it's a great example because i actually served on one oh, you did. Um, i served on actually uh two um one uh was called the special service area yeah uh, 47th street that basically uh brought uh economic development dollars to an area that had been blighted right mm. and so uh a quick example uh, there was a liquor store that had several shootings, sold, uh, to, sold liquor to minors, uh, just a very bad place sure. uh, uh, in a, a neighborhood that was not too far from uh, the president's home mm. uh, in Chicago or a community called Hyde Park. Uh, this particular board acquired the building, uh, and I'm not a, a big fan. Oh, this doesn't get me in trouble with Walmart. Uh, oh, but okay. uh, but uh, we brought we a Walmart in. We brought other retailers in. Yeah. Um, but what's more important is affordable housing. Um, right. And and that's something, particularly in that neighborhood, as it goes through gentrification, was 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 troubling. Sure. There's another economic development board or community board uh, that brought a Whole Foods, um, um, a Chipotle and Starbucks to an area called Inglewood. 
Okay. Uh, and and this community had been, been certainly played by violence, a uh, lack of investment for 30 or 40 plus years. Yeah. And so these particular boards and, and in each ward, uh, and there's, there's 50, 51 wards in Chicago, yeah. uh, have these type of boards that, again, take uh, money, um, TIF money, uh, money that is supposed to um, go towards blight. Okay. Uh, and a board that is able to dish out those funds. And so, again, I had those experiences, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to run for public office. Yeah. Uh, because I, 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 was, I, I understand economic development, and I understand how a community can move a neighborhood. I love it. And you, so what you called... Um you called yourself an educator before this. So you were you were a teacher before. So I spent eight years in the City College of Chicago system, oh, yeah. teaching entrepreneurship, uh, business marketing, and business management. I love it. And then and, and you're a, a pretty accomplished entrepreneur as well. You what? You're insurance guy. Sure, I yeah. have uh, two Allstate insurance agencies. Uh, yeah. One in an area called Bronzeville, which is similar to Harlem. Oh yeah. And another okay. area uh, called Humble Park. Uh, nine employees, and it's it's really been a it's really been a blessing, uh, yeah. and it has allowed me to get into public service because yeah. I have a a, a a another stream of income, sure, uh, which a lot of us that are elected need, right? Because it is not easy uh, to no, to run not. for public office, as you all know. Right. Uh, it is not, and, and and the amount of revenue that that comes in from that salary is is very difficult to live off of. Yeah, the salary after, yeah, when you're running is yeah, just. It's a money drain. <laughs> and real quickly, just going yeah. back to the community boards, I'd just love to hear a bit more. How do community boards usually interact with the neighborhoods they're responsible for? What is the kind of, what does that information flow look like? Sure. That's a, that's a great example. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that uh, the two boards that I set on is that we had monthly meetings that were open. Um, but any project that we, we wanted to do, particularly around, uh, as I mentioned, the liquor store and the Walmart and the affordable housing, we had several community meetings where we would go out and talk about this is what we're looking to do and make sure that the community had input. That's extremely important. Mm. And this is actually just like going out in the neighborhood and, and talking to people. That is correct. Sending out notices, putting information out on social media, uh, door knocking. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that opportunity because... Once I ran for, for the state uh, general assembly, excuse me, uh, I had already had the experience of going out and door knocking, uh, which a lot of people is, is difficult, right? Because mm-hmm. you get a lot of uh, doors slammed in your face. But to get out into the community to find out what their needs are. Yeah. Was there ever a case where you felt like the community had trouble expressing what they found important? Or was there, uh, is it possible there's miscommunication, et cetera? Yes. Um, I mean, one of the things with, 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 with getting information out is that there are always going to be a misconception. And so uh, you, you have to have people that are trusted in the community. Mm. For instance, I'd been um, a business owner for eight years, and so I had a name in the community. And so people trusted Lamont Robinson that Lamont was going to do the right thing. Um, by taking this liquor store down and bringing in a Walmart and bringing in other retailers and affordable trust. housing yeah. and, this, and to be able to do what you say you're going to do. And a lot of times, particularly in, in, in communities, in African-American communities or communities of, of color, a lot of times there's so much mistrust mm. because we've been taken advantage of. And so I think that's why it's important to have community boards and important that, that community members sit on those boards. Mm. Mm. I like I like I liked how you all were, go, were going back and forth. I mean, folks, we have about four minutes um, left. I know that uh, Nathan and company they have they have some other sort of methods that help 
again, distribute resources or, or prioritize resources. I'm specifically thinking about, you know, housing stuff. I don't know that we have enough time to get into it. I'm going to put on the website a bunch of their policy principles. They have a really interesting uh, sort of ebook, I would call it, because it's, it's a bit long, <laughs> um, that, they, that they've come out with. But uh, if anyone is, is more interested, I would suggest going to radical, the letter X, change.org. Um, to read more about what Radical Exchange is. And just adding really yeah. quickly there, so the handbook that JFK is describing has three mechanisms in it, um, which we think are the most ready to be tried out in communities today. Um, and so two of them I've mentioned earlier on here, quadratic voting and quadratic finance. Mm -hmm. And the third one um, is called SALSA, and that's an acronym for self-assessed licenses sold by auction. Um, Self-assessing licenses sold by auction. Yes. And you all call it SALSA for short. Yeah. I just want to, re I just want to repeat yeah. it. But uh -huh. so, and, and what is that? Yeah. It's essentially a different way of distributing property. Um, I'll, I'll essentially say uh, there are two things it's trying to accomplish here, and, and we can think of it in, in terms of two forms of efficiency uh, from economics. And yeah. that's allocative efficiency, so making sure that a piece of land goes to um, someone who values it the most or can be the most productive of it. And then there's investment efficiency, which is essentially someone who owns that land has the opportunity to uh, make the most out of it through investing in it. Um, and this mechanism is a way where people essentially assess the value of their land um, and pay a corresponding tax. And the caveat is that whatever they've assessed their land at um, is the amount that other people are able to purchase it for. So there's a kind of a tension because they will, ha and, and the key here is that they're incentivized to display their true valuation because if they value it too high, mm -hmm. the tax they pay um, is going to be a lot more than they think it's worth. Mm -hmm. And if they value it too low, then other people will be able to buy it at a, at a price that um, you know, they, they don't think it's worth that. It's creating a market. like for an, It's like listing an asset on an exchange of sorts. But Absolutely. you have yeah. a more authority and priority over the asset as you own it. And so it really puts people into play uh, with regards to what they think, uh, yeah, that right. asset, that piece of property is worth. It's a different way of distributing property. And, and what you said is correct. And I think a really big key here is that whatever tax they pay must go back into essentially making society more equitable. So if you think back to quadratic finance, and sure. I mentioned a fund for public goods, we can imagine that wherever you have salsa in place, the taxes that people are paying for the land they own goes into a fund that goes to match the, the development of public goods, right? So these kind of mechanisms, they all connect together. Yeah. Um, so what we're really trying to encourage now is, um, you know, go to radicalexchange.org, uh, check out the handbook, and if you see opportunities in your, your community, you know, your startup, um, whatever group of people um, who you think might, uh, might find this interesting or helpful is definitely to try it out. Um, and, you know, we've seen this in works today. So sure. I guess it, if we, yeah. yeah no, um, go ahead. Yeah, these, you got okay. time. Yep. Uh, as an example, so quadratic finance, if you look up Gitcoin grants yep. on the internet. Uh, G-E-T. G-I-T. Yeah, G-I-T-C-O-I-N. Uh -huh. um, we have actually an instance of a blockchain platform that is distributing um, funds to what we call public goods through people also donating on the blockchain. And we've had, I think it's consensus has contributed $100,000. The Ethereum Foundation has contributed um, 100k or so as well, and, and several prominent individuals in the space as well. And people are able to donate to certain causes, um, which are proposed by 
some people, um, and the people who receive those donations also get some matching from this uh, public goods fund. Mm. So we're seeing in action now. We're actually seeing all three of those things in action, mostly in the technology space, which is where I spend most of my time. but yeah, it's, I guess the key here is that these are ready to be tested, ready to be used. Um, of course, context matters in everything, right? It's not going to be applicable to every case, sure. but we really do think this can make a sizable impact in a lot of communities today. Well, yeah, I mean, we love to, I have, so I've shared the handbook with a few lawyers, actually some University of Chicago folks and some Georgetown folks that we've had here on this show who are looking at, a, you know, a really uh, interesting uh, writer, a woman named Sheila Foster, who's here on the show regularly, um, and she talks about the commons. She's writing a book called The Co-City and talks about the city as a commons. And I think, so I've showed her salsa to say, you as a lawyer, what do you think about this economic strategy and how you might leverage salsa to build legal structure around it um, to then distribute it as a solution to cities of all sorts. And uh, her and, and some of her, you know, other folks like her, again, at Chicago, at UCLA, uh, sit on, you know, or inside regularly the um, the conference of mayors and are considering how to do this. So sort of one of my objectives in, in talking to all these folks is to see these strategies start to start to be tested, especially in this decade mm-hmm. where I think housing as a... Um, as in in some cases, you know, hashtag as a human right yeah. is is coming to a head, especially as we see income equality expand. Um, this this sort of solution that that you're talking about, I think it'll, I think it's available to have new fanfare, not not just here in New York, but but across the country. Yeah. Um, and so I hope that you know going forward, you and, and Lamont will. We'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. I'll definitely send you all an email. I know you all have some. I was just chatting with Glenn uh, Weil, who I think is headed to Davos next week. So they'll be talking about this same stuff um, at the World Economic Forum. And we'll see if we can also trickle it out in, in, in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lamont, thank you for, for coming by. Where uh, can, we, can we find you? I would, I would encourage everyone to uh, follow... Um, Lamont J. Robinson on on Twitter and um, anywhere else, any anywhere else you all are. Uh, rep uh, Lamont Robinson at uh, on Instagram. Oh, on Instagram. And, and I had to come oh, all the way Instagram. to Harlem to, to to learn something. So thank yeah. you very very much. That we'll be able to take back Houston, Chicago. I'm we can connect folks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe you all can. I think you all have a group in Chicago. No, there's some Illinois. We must folks. have a meet up there. Yeah. All, all right. I'll check around. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward yeah. to it. They've sort of been growing meet up by meet up in different some of the bigger cities. So they did a conference in Detroit last year that was really interesting. And I went and, and talked about data and capital and labor uh, at that. But oh, go I got ahead. a question for Lamont if we still have time here. We got a couple minutes. We got Real quick 60 question, seconds. All right. yep. Lamont, I'm just very yeah. curious kind of for the audience out there, what is the best way to get in, uh, engaged with a community board? And I'm just speaking from perspective, I think radical exchange has a lot of interesting concepts, mm. but it's very important to first understand it, understand deeply the needs of the neighborhood, needs of the community, right? The last thing I want is to impose any mechanisms on people. So what is the best way to understand the problems of the neighborhood or get one. engaged? Find out who your elected officials are, go to the community meetings, um, sit, have a sit down with them, let them know you want to get involved. That's hugely important. Uh, that's the best way to uh, get involved is mm-hmm. know who your elected officials are, go to community meetings, voice your concerns, and let them know that you want to get involved. Totally. Yeah. Appreciate that. And it, yes, yes, definitely. Same here in New York. 
the our community boards are appointed by the borough president. They allow they give some deference to the council members to pick half of the board, but they could veto it and pick all of them. So it is their advisory board. It's actually established at least here as a department of their organization, that being the borough president. So, you know, I know there are a lot of outsiders with ideas looking at politics, but you know, politics is about as much as we talk about policy on this show. It is about relationships and power. It's about power and representation. Um, and I know some people think that that's even a, um, an aggressive or sleazy uh, comment, but it is true. Mm. And so it is increasingly important for people with ideas to be engaged. And um, with that, folks, we we will we'll see you next week. Um, anything else from from you guys? Any? Thanks Websites. for having us, JFK. Are you, are you on uh, Twitter, too? Yeah. What's your Twitter handle real At quick? At I am underscore and Chen. Love it. All right. So we'll see you next week, folks, on Inclusionism. Thank you. Thank you.